Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you. Hello, my friends, and welcome to Criminal Broads, a true crime podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. It's June, the lovely month of June, and you guys, we have a theme this month. This is Sisters Month. Every week, we're going to meet back here and talk about another case involving sisters. Sisters who worked together, played together, made bombs together, spoke a secret language together, and died together. There is something about the bond between sisters that everyone who has a sister knows is special. I have a sister. Love you, Anna. But there's something about that bond that when it goes wrong or becomes extreme or becomes twisted, makes for bizarre and very compelling stories that really baffle the mind. In in my experience researching these cases, the cases that involve sisters leave people's head spinnings, basically. Kind of like, what? What? She worked with her sister? She did this with her sister? Sisters could do this? So we're going to get into all of that this month. We're going to start with the case of the Papin sisters, one of France's most gruesome crimes and a favorite of academics everywhere. Academics love interpreting this crime. There is so much there that you can interpret or try to interpret or feel like you're interpreting. This case was requested by beloved listener Michelle W. So thank you, Michelle, for sending me down this gruesome rabbit hole. And before we get into it, I just want to say that I'm recording this and the next episode in May. Time travel. I'm recording them in May because I'm going to see my grandparents for the first time in forever. Now everyone's vaccinated and they're going to get to meet their little adorable great-grandson. So anyway, if something happens in the world, like, I don't know, Criminal Broads is awarded the Nobel Prize and I don't mention it on the podcast for the next two weeks— that's why, because I'm recording these ahead of time, okay? And I'm going to thank all my new patrons at the end of this two-week period, okay? Now you know where I'm at, when I'm at. So yeah, let's get into the story. We're going to travel back to 1930s France, and we are going to meet the crime scene. There was an eyeball on the stairs to the second floor. It lay there, staring blankly at the ceiling. It reflected the gleam of the policemen's flashlights. The policemen shone their flashlights a little further, up a few more stairs, up to the stair landing, and their lights fell across bare legs, matted hair, blood. They saw that things were only going to get worse, the farther they went up the stairs. So they told the father of the house, who was waiting nervously below, to stay down there, don't come up. You'll see things you can never unsee. The eyeball in question belonged to a young French woman named Genevieve Lancelin, who lived with her parents in the sleepy, polite town of Le Mans. Up until then, her life had been rather idyllic, She spent her days shopping, playing cards, socializing, and dressing for dinner. Her dishes were always clean, and her clothes were always wrinkle-free, because her family employed two great maids, 
who lived with them in a little attic room. But now Genevieve's life was over. Her eyeball was on the stairs to the second floor, staring blankly at the ceiling. A little further on, her body lay in a pool of blood next to the body of her mother. Genevieve's thighs were covered in neat little cuts like the slices on top of a loaf of bread. One of her own teeth was buried in her scalp. The flashlights of the policemen shone on all of this. They were using flashlights because the rest of the house was dark, except for the little attic room where Genevieve's killers waited to be found. The maids who worked at the Lancelot house were sisters. Their names were Christine and Leah Papin. They looked alike, even though Christine was seven years older. They could have been twins, but they didn't want to be twins. They wanted to be something else, something even closer. Christine would say that in another life, she was her sister's husband. Christine and Leah were poor girls from a tough background. They grew up in rural France, in a region which had a reputation for being sort of backwards. At least, that's how city folk saw it. Their working-class parents were named Gustave and Clemence, and they had an older sister, Amelia, who was rumored to be the product of an affair. Later, Clemence would accuse her husband of molesting Amelia. Their family tree had other troubled branches on it, an uncle who hanged himself, a cousin who went mad. Their mother seemed to have no interest in being a mom. When Christine was born in 1904, Clemence gave her to her sister-in-law and let her sister-in-law raise the baby. Seven years later, little Leah was born, and the Papin family splintered even further. Their parents divorced, and Amelia and Christine were sent to an orphanage, while little Leah went to live at an uncle's house. Eventually, Amelia landed in a convent, where she stayed for the rest of her life, as far as we know, completely out of touch with her family. That life, being out of touch with her family, must have sounded amazing to Christine, because she tried to join a convent too, but her mother said no. Instead, when Christine was about 16, her mother forced her to become a different type of woman. Not a nun, but a maid. Her mother may have had a nefarious reason for this. Money. As a nun, Christine wouldn't be bringing home any spending money. But as a maid, she would. A few years later, her little sister Leah became a maid, too. Now, being a maid was no easy job. If you're picturing women in frilly bonnets wielding feather dusters, think again. As one journalist for the New York Times wrote, even with the best of employers, wages were low, hours were long, food was poor, humiliations were frequent. If the maids messed up, say if they broke a plate, it could be taken out of their wages, which would be a crushing blow to morale. Employers loved to complain about their maids. It was practically a pastime of the bourgeoisie. And in Le Mans, the town where the Papin sisters ended up, People would often categorize their maids. There were the drunken ones, the whorish ones, the thieving ones. Christine was the insolent one, according to earlier employers. Her little sister Leah was more of a wallflower. 
she shrank back, let Christine take over for her. People would later wonder if Leia's personality had been completely absorbed into her older sisters. But no matter their personality flaws, you couldn't deny that they were great workers. They kept the place sparkling. They always looked immaculate. They cleaned up after their messes. At this point in their lives, Christine and Leia were pretty much estranged from the rest of their family. Their dad kept away from them. Their older sister was behind convent walls. They were in contact with their mother sometimes, but again, their mother wasn't really a mother to them. She hadn't raised them, and all she did those days was ask them for money. Later, newspapers would report that she had become a religious mystic whose practices verge on hysteria. Rumor had it that she forced her daughters to keep changing jobs, thinking that they could make even more money by cleaning for different, better families. So the girls couldn't turn to her for help or guidance or affection. Not really. All they had was each other. But that was okay with them, because all they wanted was each other. Let's take a quick break to hear from this episode's sponsors. First up, Dipsy. Now, everyone needs an escape, right? But those can be hard to come by sometimes. Enter Dipsy. Dipsy is an audio app full of short, sexy stories designed to turn you on. Each Dipsy audio story feels characters that feel like real people and immersive scenarios. You can find stories about hooking up with the hometown crush that you always loved from afar but never made a move on, or maybe a story that puts you in bed with someone that's a little bit Fifty Shades of Grayish? I don't know. I didn't say it. I didn't say it. They release new content every week, so there's always more to explore, no matter who you're into or what turns you on. And if you need to wind down, Dipsy also has wellness sessions, sensual bedtime stories, and soundscapes to help you relax before you drift off. So, for listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash criminalbroads. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash criminalbroads. dipsystories.com slash criminalbroads. Our second sponsor is Daily Harvest. I have a lot of mornings recently where I need to like post about criminal broads on Instagram, chug my coffee, and also get my baby, who's really sort of more of a toddler now, to the playground stat before he screams at me. (laughs) Enter Daily Harvest. (laughs) Daily Harvest is there for me when I need something healthy fast, like a really quick smoothie or like a wellness bowl or a flatbread. They are these delicious foods made from organic fruits and vegetables that get delivered right to your door and you put them in your freezer. This is key, guys. You put them in your freezer until you're ready for them and then you take out the thing you want to turn into a smoothie or a harvest bowl or whatever. And literally, like I'm talking like in like three minutes, it's ready. Okay? So you don't have to overthink it and you can get to the playground in time, which is very important. So if this sounds good to you, you can get started today. Go to dailyharvest.com and enter promo code CRIMINALBROADS to get $25 off your first box. That's promo code CRIMINALBROADS for $25 off your first box at dailyharvest.com, dailyharvest.com. 
In February of 1927, Christine got a new job as a maid for the Lancelot family. Two months later, Leah joined her. The Lancelot patriarch, Monsieur René, was a retired lawyer who seemed like a fine, upstanding member of the town. Decades later, a documentary about the Papin sisters would reveal that he was actually involved in a major financial scandal involving a lot of Le Mans' finest businessmen at the time. But then he just seemed like a nice older man who spent his afternoons at his private club and his nights with his family. The matriarch's name was Madame Léonie Lancelin, and she was the one who gave orders to the Papin sisters. Genevieve was their daughter. She was grown, unmarried, still lived with her parents. She hardly ever talked to the maids. We don't know all that much about her. It seems that the family led a relatively normal, if narrow, life, financial scandals aside. By the fall of 1929, after about two and a half years of working at the Lancelins, the Papa sisters cut off all contact with their mother. Their lives were becoming increasingly insular. They were almost literally not speaking to anyone but each other. They never went out to dinner or to the theater or to dances or to any of the other entertainments available to the servants of the town. They didn't date. They didn't see family. And they didn't talk to their employers. They hardly exchanged a single word with the people they lived with. Now, this seems bizarre today and full of significance, but it was probably more common than we think. Here's what two academics, Rachel Edwards and Keith Reeder, write in The Papin Sisters, which is the best book about the girls. Quote, The social, economic, and above all cultural gulf between employing and employer classes was far too immense to be bridged by fleeting pleasantries or yield meaningful conversations. In other words, there was no way maids could talk with their bosses. What in the world would they say? Now, a central question of the case is this. Were Christine and Léa Papin treated badly by their employers? Sure, you could argue that any live-in maid who lives in a little room in an attic is by default treated badly. But in 1930s France, in a world where people had live-in maids in little attic rooms, were the Papins treated particularly badly? Was there something unusual about the house where they lived and worked? There are rumors that things weren't great. Rumors that Madame Lancelot was a cruel mistress. One story goes that Leia dropped a piece of paper on the floor and Madame Lancelot pinched her arm so hard that she started bleeding. There are other stories of Madame Lancelot being, if not cruel, then sort of irritatingly picky. Rumor has it that she put on white gloves to make sure the maids had dusted properly. She'd run her white-gloved fingers along the bookshelves. And that if she had a problem with their cooking, she'd write a note and have her daughter deliver it to the kitchen. But she made sure they had enough food to eat, and she let them have heat in their bedroom, which is more than some employers did. And later on, after the eyeball on the stairs and all the horror around it, the sisters themselves would admit, at certain points, that the Lancelots hadn't been all that bad. In fact... Monsieur Lancelin once implied that the people with the most control in the house were the sisters. He said that after the girls cut off contact with their mother, their personalities changed. The quarrel with their mother certainly embittered the sisters, who became gloomy and taciturn, he said. Since then, neither my wife nor I had any conversation with them outside their work. They were polite, and since we felt that they would take exception to any comment, and they did their jobs in the house impeccably— 
we were patient. Let's zoom into that sentence a bit. Since we felt that they would take exception to any comment, we were patient. This isn't a sentence about dominating one's servants. This describes a situation where the employers are waiting for the servants to make the next move. It implies, as Rachel Edwards and Keith Reeder write, that the Papans exerted a bizarre kind of power over their employers. But could maids ever truly have the power? In 1930, after three years of working for the Lancelot family, the sisters went to the mayor of the town and told him that they were being persecuted. They were highly emotional, but they made a rather incoherent case for themselves. No one was exactly sure what they were talking about. The town hall secretary told the mayor that the girls were, quote, nutcases. Today, almost a hundred years later, we'll never really know what the vibe was like between the Papins and the Lancelins. Were the Lancelins cruel and overbearing? Or did the Papin girls wield a strange power from their tiny upstairs room? All we know is that one evening, after working there for six years, the maids suddenly felt like they couldn't do it anymore. By January of 1933, Christine was almost 28. Leia was 21. They'd been working for the Lancelot family for the past six years. At the end of the month, something irritating happened. The household iron stopped working, and the girls had to take it to get it fixed. Worse, the cost of the repairs came out of their own salaries, which must have stung, especially since the girls were scrupulous about saving their money. On February 1st, Christine went to pick up the iron, which was supposed to be repaired. The next day, as they were using it, the iron broke again. It blew a fuse, and the whole house plunged into darkness. This would obviously be annoying, maybe even infuriating. But the way the pompons reacted implied that it was utterly unbearable. Maybe there was something about the idea that they'd have to get the iron fixed again and that the cost would come out of their wages again that they just couldn't stand. Or maybe it was the darkness itself that triggered them. The lights went out around 5 p.m. and they were alone in the dark house for about an hour. Christine and Leia. Leia and Christine. Did they talk? Did they plot? Did they hold each other's hands and wait? Did they just sit there in the dark rooms, totally silent, reading each other's minds? Madame Lancelot and Genevieve came home around 6 p.m. They were displeased to find the house dark. Madame Lancelot saw Christine going upstairs with a candle in her hand. Christine explained what had happened with the iron and the blown fuse. And according to Christine, Madame Lancelot reacted with fury and lunged at her. This was the last straw for Christine. She wasn't just going to stand there. As she said later, I'd rather have had our bosses hide than for them to have had ours. She went into a black state of anger, she said. There was a table nearby with a pewter pitcher on it. She reached for the pitcher, swung it around, and slammed the pitcher into her mistress's face. Genevieve heard her mother screaming and came running. She flung herself on Christine and pulled out a chunk of her hair 
and then Christine swung the pitcher around and brought it crashing down on the daughter, too. Leah then came running and joined her sister in the battle. And then, well, let's let Christine tell it. Voyant que Madame Lancelin allait se jeter sur moi, je lui ai sauté à la figure et je lui ai arraché les yeux avec mes doigts. Saying that Madame Lancelin was going to rush at me, I flung myself in her face and tore her eyes out with my fingers. When I said that I flung myself at Madame Lancelin, that is wrong. I flung myself at Mademoiselle Geneviève Lancelin and tore out her eyes. While this was going on, my sister Leah leapt at Madame Lancelin and tore her eyes out. When we've done that, they laid and squatted down on the spot. Then, I hurried down to the kitchen to get a hammer and a kitchen knife. With these two instruments, my sister and I said about our two mistresses. We hit them over the heads with the hammer and slashed their bodies and legs with the knife. We also hit them with a little pure jug, which was on the little table on the landing, and we changed instruments several times. I handed the hammer to my sister, and she handed me the knife. We did the same thing with the pure jug. The victim began howling, but I don't remember this actually saying anything. Leah confirmed Christine's narration of events, like she was a child, reciting something from memory. Everything my sister told you is correct. The crimes happen exactly as she told them to you. My role in this matter is absolutely the one she told you. I hate them as much as her, like her. I affirm that we did not plan to kill our bosses. The idea came to us instantly when we heard that Madame Lancelin reproached us. Just like my sister, I have no regrets for the crime we have committed. Like my sister, I would rather have had the skin of my bosses than for them to have mine. After the killing, the sisters turned to each other and said, that's a clean job of it. They were maids again now. They tidied up as best they could. They washed off the murder weapons. They splashed their hands and faces with water. They took off their blood-stained dresses and put on matching blue robes. And then they got into bed and waited to be found. Below them, on the stair landing, the Lancelot women were quiet forever. The murder scene was like something out of a horror movie. The women's faces were unrecognizable. Their thighs had been sliced neatly, like loaves of bread or meat ready for the oven. As one journalist wrote, blood had softened the carpet till it was like an elastic red moss. And most shockingly of all were the eyes, or the lack of eyes. That same journalist wrote that this was the only criminal case on record where eyeballs were removed from the living head without practice of any instrument except the human finger. In the meantime, Monsieur Laslan was confused. He'd spent the afternoon at his private club, and he and his family had plans to eat with his brother-in-law that night. They were supposed to eat at seven, and so a little bit before that, he went home to pick up his daughter and his wife. But the doors were locked, and there were no lights on in the entire house, which was weird. Wait, there was a light, coming from the attic, where the maids lived, but it was a soft, flickering light. And when he started knocking on the door, even that soft light went off. As he left, the light came back on. It was spooky. 
He told all this to his brother-in-law, who agreed that the situation was weird. The two of them went back to the house and noticed the same things, the darkness, the strange little light that vanished and reappeared. That was enough for them. They got the police. Three policemen forced open a window, and the men crept inside the silent, dark house with flashlights. They walked upstairs, and when they got to the second floor, their flashlights illuminated the scene, the twisted limbs, the bloody faces, the eyes. The policemen told Monsieur Laslan to stay below, and they continued up to the attic. They figured that with such a brutal killer on the loose, those two poor maids had surely met a similar fate— and so they were shocked to discover that the Papa sisters were alive and well. They were in the same bed, in their matching blue robes. The room was lit by a single candle. Christine instantly admitted that they'd done it. Though she had been the one who started the killings, the sisters had agreed that they'd accept responsibility for the crime the same way that they did everything else in life. Together. Christine and Leia were taken to jail and photographed in their blue robes. In the photos, their hair is disheveled and they look a little bit confused. A journalist who saw them in jail described them as neurotics who often appear to be under hypnosis. They were separated, which they couldn't stand. Each of them went on a hunger strike, and they wouldn't eat or drink for a week in protest, but still authorities kept them apart. Though Leia was the one who was under Christine's influence, Christine was the one who really deteriorated when she was kept apart from her sister. As the weeks stretched into months, Christine started running around her cell, calling for Leia, and sometimes calling out for an imaginary husband and child. She said that she dreamed that Leia was hanging from a tree with her legs cut off. Once, she flung herself on the ground and started making the sign of the cross with her tongue on the floor and then the walls and furniture of her cell. Another time, she screamed out of her cell window, Sorry! Sorry! I will not do it again! It was I who attacked Madame Lancelot! Her condition escalated until she tried to tear out her own eyes, and she was promptly put into a straitjacket. Finally, authorities relented. They'd let Christine see her beloved younger sister, and maybe it would help with her mental state. And so they arranged a reunion between the two imprisoned girls. As soon as Christine saw her sister, she ripped off her shirt and cried, Tell me yes! Tell me yes! This moment is one that journalists and psychoanalysts alike really hone in on. What did Christine mean? Her cry felt sexual, incestual. No one could deny it. Though Christine herself denied that she and her sister were lovers, there were several reasons to wonder. At one point, she had said that in another life, she was her sister's husband. A doctor who interviewed them insisted that Christine's agony at being separated from her sister was the agony of a lover. The Papa sisters give every appearance of having an abnormal relationship, that of lovers, he said. They never went out. Neither was known to have any emotional adventures. When they were separated in prison, Christine showed the most intense despair. A lover forcibly removed from his beloved mistress would not have shown greater signs of grief. And then there was this bizarre detail. 
During the killings, Christine had moved Genevieve's clothing aside, revealing her genitals. When detectives asked Christine why she'd done that, she responded, I was looking for something whose possession would have made me stronger. This sentence was ripe for psychoanalysis. Was she talking about a penis? And if so, what in the world? Today, it's pretty common to read that the Papin sisters were discovered in bed together after the crime, totally naked. And some reports of their reunion in jail say that Christine exposed herself and fondled her breasts in front of everyone. In other words, the little hints that we have of incest have grown into big rumors over the years that make their story seem even more sexual, even more extreme. But when Christine cried, tell me yes, tell me yes, was that necessarily a sexual statement? It seems to me that there are a lot of ways to interpret that. The word yes is full of meaning. Was she saying, tell me, yes, we're going to be okay? Tell me, yes, the crime was all in my head? Tell me, yes, we get to live together again. The ripping off of her shirt could be sexual, or it could be a way of expressing a desire to be free, as though she were ripping off her straitjacket. And there's one other interpretation that comes to mind. Instead of being each other's lovers, is there any chance that Christine thought of herself as Leia's mother? Their own mother was missing from their lives, as we know, and they seemed to long for a mother figure. They would sometimes call Madame Lancelin Mama behind her back, and weirdly, they called their real mother Madame. When Christine was taking off her shirt and calling to her sister, was she making a confused gesture towards something like breastfeeding? Maybe it's too dangerous to search for meaning in the Papin sisters' gestures. Much of what they did, like searching under Genevieve's skirts for a metaphorical penis, had no basis in reality. The only things we can say for certain are real are the things like the blood on the floor and the glassy eyeballs staring at the ceiling. The sisters' trial started on September 30th, 1933. People protested outside the courthouse, yelling that they wanted the sisters to get the death penalty. The courtroom was crowded with journalists who peered curiously at the sisters and noted that they didn't look scary or large or even all that old. They looked like little girls. The Vanity Fair journalists noted how unwell they looked in the courtroom. They were stick-thin and pale. As the trial proceeded, the spectators could have thought the court was judging one Papin cadaver seen double. So much the sisters looked alike and dead, she wrote. A very dramatic journalist for a paper in Spokane, Washington, described them like this. In the dock, Christine, pulling her long gray coat around her, squirmed and settled back like a panther whose hunger has been appeased and who longs for sleep. Leia, swathed in black stared into space with lackluster eyes. Now, everyone knew that the girls had committed the crimes. They had admitted that right away. So the question at stake was whether or not they knew what they were doing. Were they sane or were they insane? Most people who spent any time with the sisters saw that they were clearly unwell. 
Remember the journalist who saw them in jail shortly after the crime and described them as neurotics who often appear to be under hypnosis? Still, the prosecution argued that they were perfectly sane and should be charged as such. Three psychiatric experts for the prosecution testified that they were guilty as charged and merited no mercy. They declared, Christine and Leah Papin are in no way tainted. They do not suffer any mental malady. They do not carry in any way the weight of a tainted heredity. From the point of view of intellect, affections, and emotions, they are entirely normal. The prosecutor's narrative was that the girls were angry at their employers for the way that they'd been treated over the years, and that that anger boiled over into murder on the evening of February 2nd. He described them as vicious bitches who bite the hand that no longer caresses them, and declared, since they behaved like wild animals, they must be treated like savages and wild animals. The defense, of course, insisted that the sisters needed to be examined further, but no one really listened. It was too tempting to turn the girls into larger-than-life figures of evil or of resistance. Yes, outside of the courtroom, the girls had become famous among the communists and the surrealists and the poets as a symbol of class warfare. They were not vicious bitches. They were warriors who, quote, paid evil back in coins of red-hot iron, as two poets wrote. But both the prosecution's narrative and the poet's narrative were contradicted by the sisters themselves. In court, they said that they didn't really have any reason to resent their employers. They mentioned that they didn't know their employers all that well, but that Madame Lancelot had allowed them to have heat in their room, and so on. They didn't seem concerned with creating an excuse for themselves or with upholding any narrative of persecution. The only thing the sisters seemed to care about was making one thing very clear, that they were both equally responsible for the crime. Maybe they thought that if they were given equal responsibility, they'd get the exact same sentence, and they could live out the rest of their days in a cell together. No one believed that they were equally responsible, though. Leia herself had said at one point, I am deaf and dumb, which seemed to mean, let my sister speak for me. It was obvious that Christine was the ringleader. The jury took a staggering four minutes to deliberate, and they came back with tellingly unequal verdicts. Leia was sentenced to 10 years hard labor. Christine was sentenced to be executed at the guillotine in the town's main square. When she heard her fate, Christine dropped to her knees. What was she feeling in that moment? She was kneeling like a woman in a confessional. Maybe she was feeling the same thing that she used to scream out of the bars of her cell. Sorry, sorry, I will not do it again. Or wait, am I over-interpreting Christine now? Was she feeling something entirely different as she kneeled in the courtroom? It's really impossible to say, and that's what makes the Papin sisters so haunting, so intriguing. It's not just the violence of their crime or the lack of a believable official explanation for it. It's their silence. Everything they say is mysterious, and more often than not, they don't say anything at all. 
And this means that it's very easy and very tempting to turn them into a metaphor. As their biographers write, the sisters' own inarticulacy appears like a virgin page on which the temptation to write is endless. We've already touched on how the communists saw them as clear examples of class struggle, two revolutionary maids who slaughtered their bourgeois masters. Of course, it was tempting to interpret their crime that way, but the Papin sisters never said much about class at all. The closest thing they ever gave to a revolutionary war cry was Christine's quote, I'd rather have had our bosses hide than for them to have had ours. But whatever the sisters did or did not say didn't stop them from becoming obsessed over by France's intelligentsia. Writers like Jean Genet, Jean-Paul Sartre, Simone de Beauvoir, and the psychiatrist Jacques Lacan all took a stab at understanding them. Here's Simone de Beauvoir. In its broad outline, the tragedy of the Papin sisters was immediately clear to us. In Rouen, as in Le Mans, and perhaps even among the mothers of my pupils, there were no doubt women who deducted the cost of a broken plate from their maids' wages, who put on white gloves to find forgotten specks of dust on the furniture. In our eyes, they deserved death a hundred times over. With their wavy hair and their white collars, how sensible Christine and Léa Papin seemed in the old photo that some papers published. How had they become those haggard furies offered up to public condemnation in the photos taken after the drama? One must accuse their childhood orphanage, their serfdom, the whole hideous system set up by decent people for the production of madmen, assassins, and monsters. And here's Lacan. That fateful evening, under anxiety of an imminent punishment, the sisters mingled the mirage of their illness with the image of their mistresses. They detested the distress of the couple who they carried away in an atrocious quadrille. They tore out their eyes as bacantes castrate their victims. The sacrilegious curiosity, from which the beginning of time has anguished man, moved them in their desire for the victims and in their attempt to track down in the dead woman's gaping wounds what Christine, in her innocence, later described to the court as the mystery of life. He's referring there to Christine's odd quote about searching for something under Genevieve's skirts that would give her power. So, as people who were luckier and more educated than the sisters were, tried to understand them, the sisters themselves were locked up. Christine was never sent to the guillotine. The president of France changed her sentence to hard labor for life. She and Leah were sent to the same prison, but kept apart there. In prison, Christine deteriorated more and more. She insisted that she didn't deserve to live, referred to herself as good for nothing, and stopped eating. On one of the rare occasions, or perhaps the only occasion, that she saw her sister, she said the most shocking thing that she had ever said. She is very nice, but she's not my sister. Eventually, Christine was moved to an asylum, where she wasted away further and died in the spring of 1937 of a lung infection. Now, there was only one. Without the overwhelming influence of her sister, Leia made her way back to a somewhat normal life. She served her time and was released in 1943. She moved back in with her mother and worked as a maid again. She kept a little collection of mementos from her old life some of Christine's things, and a little bit of lace that had come from the Lancelin house. 
A journalist tracked her down and described her as looking like a ghost of the past that has burnt her until she is the color of ash. In 1982, newspapers reported that she was dead. But decades later, in 2000, a documentarian found out that she was still alive. In his film, In Search of the Papin Sisters, he finds Leia in a hospice room. She's had a brain hemorrhage, and she can't talk. Christine was long gone, but at the end of her days, Leia had become the silent sister once again. Even though the screams of the Lancelot women must have been terrible as they ricocheted through that dark house, the most important noise of the entire story is silence. After the sisters' trial finished, a French newspaper published a chilling little sentence. And today, it still feels like the only thing any of us can definitively say about the case. Quote, Nobody can claim fundamental knowledge of the complex souls of women, and especially of the serving women who each day make their way among us in silence. And that's the spooky, spooky story of the Papan sisters, my dear listeners. I'm sorry about all the details of the eyeballs, but you really can't tell the story without it. We didn't even really get into the metaphorical significance of eyes, eyeballs, eyes being the windows of the soul, Christine tearing out eyes and then trying to tear out her own eyes. I mean, you can see why, you know... France's most educated people were just like salivating to interpret this case. It seems so rich for interpretation, but you can interpret it all you want. I've tried. I've felt the temptation myself. And then you just inevitably end up at this place where you're like, maybe that's what Christine meant, but also ultimately who can say. All right, I hope you enjoyed that story or at least weren't too horrified by it. Go to Instagram.com slash Criminal Broads if you'd like to see pictures of the sisters and let me know if you have any interpretations of them that you'd like to share with me. If you're enjoying the podcast, I would be eternally in your debt if you would uh, rate and review on Apple Podcasts, preferably. Please do it and then send me a note and I'll officially send you a note back saying, I am eternally in your debt and this you can use this legally in court. <laughs> okay? <laughs> and I'll meet you back here next week for our second tale of sisters. This one is a big tonal shift. We've talked about some sisters who did something very bad. And we're going to shift and talk about sisters who at least tried to do some very good things, although the story is not without its extreme violence. All right, until then, have a lovely week. Enjoy the first week of June, and I'll see you here next week. Bye-bye. Maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong, loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death 
in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook Games.